All right, you might wonder what I'm up to uh, putting these things up here. What's the first thing that comes into your mind when you see those symbols? What's that? Somebody say it. Okay, that's, that's what all the flowers on the one are supposed, supposed to represent. Um, you remember the flower children and you remember the BW vans with, the, with all the peace signs on them and whatnot. Uh, for some of you, it might even bring back memories of a radical change in society, a time when old values were questioned and sometimes overthrown in, in favor of a new worldview that's summed up in the expression, make love, not war. Maybe you can remember, and I think there's only one or two, maybe five people here who can remember the days of the Vietnam War the public outrage and the peace rallies on university campuses. To a confused and alienated generation, war made no sense, and that symbol behind me represented peace. You got no peace here. <laughs> this same symbol was also embraced by another confused and alienated generation, a generation demographers dubbed Generation X. And I think I come just on the beginning of Generation X, and, or on the, yeah, tail end of, no, hang on, the tail end of the baby boomers and the beginning of Generation X. The peace that Generation X longed for was the same kind of peace their parents had demanded years before. It's a peace that rules out any conflict for any reason, that levels a playing field of human experience. It's a peace that cannot be embraced without the overflow, overthrow of traditional values that separate people and groups. I want to read for you an, ex an excerpt from a statement from the Universal House of Justice, which is the governing body of the Baha'i faith. You might not know much about the Baha'i faith, but it's a faith that purports to have elements of Islam, of Christianity, and probably a few other religions, and really bases itself around the concept of tolerance. But I want to read this from their document. It's addressed to the peoples of the world. The great peace toward pe which people of goodwill throughout the centuries have inclined their hearts of which seers and poets for countless generations have expressed their vision, and from which age to age the sacred scriptures of mankind have constantly held the promise, is now at, last, at long last within the reach of the nations. For the first time in history, it is possible for everyone to view the entire planet with all its myriad, diversi myriad diversified peoples in one perspective. World peace is not only possible, it is inevitable. It is the next stage in the evolution of this planet. In the words of one great thinker, the planetization of mankind. Whether peace is to be reached only after unimaginable sorrows precipitated by humanity's stubborn patterns of behavior, or is to be, or is to be embraced now by an act of consultative will, is the choice of all who inhabit the earth. It might have a familiar ring to it because we hear so many proclaiming a similar hope and a message for peace. So I'm going to ask you do, you, do you agree with that statement? Do you believe that peace is inevitable and that if we just let go of our political, moral, religious, and cultural hang-ups, 
peace will magically appear. I want to read another statement, and I'm reading, I, I'm reading some very bizarre stuff, so bear with me. This one's from a book called The Externalization of the Hierarchy by Alice Bailey. Alice Bailey allegedly received the inspiration for her book from a so-called ascended master named Dewald Kuhl, a demonic spirit in my opinion. The book was published by Lucis Trust, formerly known as Lucifer Trust. Here's the quote. In spite of war and separation, of cruelty and of passions and selfishness running wild, there is nevertheless today more true understanding, more goodwill, and more outgoing love than at any previous time in the history of the race. I say this with deliberation and because I have the hierarchical knowledge available to my hand. And other, the hierarchical knowledge, by the way, is rulers of wickedness in heavenly realms. That, who is, that is who is communicating with her. Be not deceived, therefore, by the outer clamor of war. I tell you that men's hearts everywhere are full of compassion, both for themselves and for all other men. The wide scope and the vast extent of the conflict is indicative of an inner unity and a subjective interrelation of which all are somewhat conscious and which the conflict itself does not negate. Is this a hard saying? I seek to indicate to you its basic truth, if you will but ponder upon what I say with an open mind. The task of all aspirants and all men of goodwill everywhere is to see that prolonged suffering does not undermine the present right and essential attitudes, and that the chaos and clamor does not shut out our response to the voice of the soul. Now, if you are able to follow those quotations, you will understand they're both saying exactly the same thing. One is from a, a religious source and another is from what I call a theosophical or a new age source, um, a Luciferian source. For many people, this kind of a dream is irresistible. In fact, the dream of a new world order, a new age of cooperation and enlightenment has become the dominant worldview in our society. But from where does such a worldview come? Is it really the main point and the hope of the sacred scriptures of all mankind? Certainly, many world religions stress harmony through human cooperation. In fact, most do. You can even see it in, a lot, in the social gospel that has invaded many Christian denominations. Salvation has come to mean the elimination of strife and suffering rather than Christ's atonement for sin. But while harmony among men is a noble goal, it is not the point of the true gospel. It is not the point of the Old Testament or of the New Testament. It is nothing more than the desire of men to fix a sin-ruined wor sin world without God's help. While they may pay lip service to God, their true desire is earthbound, not God-centered. They desire peace among men without accountability to God. This afternoon we're going to look at Jesus' perspective on peace and compare it to the view that I have just described. For some of you this may be a painful experience because you have unwittingly aligned your thinking with the world's definition of peace. I want to assure you that I am not knocking peace. It's a concept that is woven throughout scripture and it is certainly a legitimate hope. What I am challenging is the world's definition of peace. Real peace is not politically correct. 
Let's search the scriptures together for a piece that is biblically correct. Please, if you would like, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. If you don't, uh, it's just one verse I'm going to read from there. Um, so you can turn there if you like. Luke 2 verse 14. This is the angels saying to the shepherds, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men upon whom his favor rests. Now this is an older message, so if you got the ESV, it might say something a little different. I didn't get around to changing the text. Now, if you'll turn over to Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, and that's in the passage we read at the beginning of the service, where Jesus says to his disciples, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Talk about a contradiction. How can the same Savior who brought peace and on earth also bring a sword and divide families against each other? It seems like a conundrum or a paradox, but there's but let's take a closer look. In Luke 2, 4, 2, verse 14, the angels make no reference to the absence of human conflict. They make no promise that wars will cease or that religious squabbles will disappear. What they promise is far more than any of that. They promise peace with God. They say that God is extending peace not to everyone on earth, but to those whom he favors. This implies that there are people who have hardened themselves against God, whom God does not favor. Notice that the key text says, notice that the text says that there is peace to men or toward men, not peace among men. The first key concept in understanding biblical peace, therefore, is that Jesus came primarily to bring peace between God and man, not peace among men. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. With this understanding in mind, it is easy, easy to reconcile these two passages. In fact, if we look at the context of Matthew 10, verse 34 to 36, we see that Jesus makes a clear distinction between the two types of peace. Verses 32 and 33 talk about peace with God. It says, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. In these verses, the people who acknowledge Jesus are the ones on whom God's favor rests. They have peace with God. Those who disown Jesus before men have no peace with God. Between these two types of people is a chasm that cannot be bridged by any amount of, amount of human mediation or peacemaking. The Bible says that there is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus, the one who gave himself as a ransom for us. The only way to peace with God is through saving faith in Jesus Christ. Naturally, these two types of people, those on whom God's favor rests and everyone else, they don't exist, coexist peacefully. 
to those who reject God, the assurance of Christians seems arrogant and naive. Just telling this line of reasoning sounds familiar. Can you believe it? Christians say that their way is the only way to God. What makes them so sure of themselves? What makes them so sure that Jesus is the ticket? What about my way? I'm a good person. Who are you to judge? Look at all the good stuff I do. Those arrogant Bible thumpers really need a good dose of reality. They ought to get their heads out of the clouds and start dealing with life here on planet Earth. Now probably everyone in this building can relate to that kind of a conflict or that kind of reasoning. It is the inevitable conflict between the children of God and the children of the world. While the Baha'is and the New Agers say that peace is inevitable, Jesus says conflict is inevitable. The second key to understanding biblical peace is that peace with God often involves conflict between people. Perhaps this seems like a rather blunt statement. So let me support it with scripture. Matthew 5 verse 11 says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This verse contains two main ideas. First, insults and persecutions come because of Jesus Christ, because of our relationship and commitment and inclusion in Christ. Because Jesus has given us peace with God and because that peace is at odds with the world, we can expect these things, persecution and insults. Peace and persecution form a cause and effect relationship. You can remember from the book of Acts when the disciples, Peter and John, when they preached the word, they were persecuted, weren't they? They were put in jail. Then they got everyone together after they were released and they prayed for boldness. And then they went out and preached some more and then they were persecuted some more. Jesus makes it clear. Uh, sorry, lost my spot here. The second idea that we see in this passage, Matthew 5, verse 11, is that there is the tension between the righteous and the unrighteous is nothing new. Jesus makes it clear that like the prophets of old, those who speak out for him will be the center of controversy and division. They will be persecuted. The Apostle Peter also links peace with God with God to conflict between people. He says in 1 Peter 4, 12, Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange is happening to you, but rejoice that, rejoice that you are participating in the sufferings of Christ. Once again, we see that if we are at peace with God, we can expect to be at odds with the world. Conflict should come as no surprise. While we can expect, while we can expect conflict, it is important to understand that we are not to seek conflict. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 12, 18, If it is possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Remember that the fruit of the Spirit is peace. It's not fruits of the Spirit, it's the fruit of the Spirit is, and love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, they're all part of that singular fruit. So I'm saying the fruit of the Spirit is peace. Therefore, it falls to the Christian 
to be peaceable. This is the evidence of God working in our lives. But even from this encouragement to be peaceful, it is clear that there are situations where it will not be possible to be at peace with all men. We cannot, for example, lay aside the Lord Jesus in order to show respect for the Lord Krishna, or the Lord Buddha, or the Prophet Muhammad, in the interest of peace. When the true gospel of Jesus Christ is challenged or undermined by false teaching, we are called to earnestly contend, literally to fight for the faith. In case the link between peace with God and conflict among men is not yet clear, let's look at one more passage. James 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Could it be any more blunt than that? God has friends and God has enemies. You can be one or the other, but not both. If you choose to be a friend of God, you are going to have enemies. In fact, you will probably have more enemies than friends because those who love the world with its dream of peace without Jesus are your enemies. Maybe your blood is starting to boil if you're a redneck and you're thinking, all right, let's go and get them heathens. Let's hit them hard with the gospel and while we're at it, let's teach them a lesson. Let's bomb their abortion clinics and start a militia to overthrow the godless liberals in power. You've heard people talk like that, I'm sure. Let's put the fear of God into them. Just remember that as Christians, we are not called to destroy our enemies. We are called to love them. Not to tolerate their wickedness or their false ideas, but to love them as Jesus loved us. To love them enough to endure hardship and torture, even to die at their hands while carefully and happily proclaiming the living truth of God. So far we have discovered that Jesus came to bring peace with God, not peace among men. We have also seen that peace with God implies conflict between people. While I fully believe the truth of both of these statements, I have to admit they leave me kind of cold. Peace with God is a wonderful thing, but wouldn't it be great if there really could be world peace? Am I being sinful by entertaining such a dream? Is there nothing to look forward to in this life besides conflict and persecution? Maybe you've been asking yourself the same questions. For me, all of these little questions are wrapped up in one big question. Does God want peace in this world or not? To answer this question, we need to look at one more aspect of biblical peace. And this one is perhaps the most overlooked of them all. Here it is. Peace is not a pipe dream, it's a person. It seems that great leaders and common folks alike tend to build their worldviews around abstract ideals of peace uh, rather than something living and personal. Remember John Lennon's famous song, Imagine? He imagined all the people living life in peace because they had abandoned God and all absolutes. Though his utopian world was to be one with no religion, the song itself became somewhat of a religious anthem for Americanized Eastern mysticism. People have always looked to religion for peace. 
Karl Marx called religion the opiate of the masses. He saw religion as an ethical system whereby people aligned themselves with an ideal they called God. In effect, the masses were pacified by the deity of their own delusion. The problem is that Marx replaced the pipe dream of God with the pipe dream of, socialist, of a socialist state and the philosophy of communism. And guess what? It didn't work. No peace. But we have found the answer in democracy, haven't we? Isn't democracy God's chosen form of government? It seems like many Americans think that their constitution is divinely inspired. Many people live as though it were. They place their hope for peace in an idea, a pipe dream, the American dream. We Canadians think the same way. As I understand it, pipe dreams are nice for a while, but then you wake up with a big headache. Real peace, biblical peace, is not a pipe dream. It isn't a procedure or a formula to be precisely followed. It isn't the product of some egghead's imagination. Real peace is a person, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace, who made the two one, and has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create within himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. This passage is about two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles, who are separated by religious and cultural boundaries so solid that Peter describes them as a wall of hostility. No overture on the part of one side or the other could have destroyed the wall, but the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ could. You, think, you can think for a visual illustration of the wall that is uh, protecting between Israel and Gaza and the West Bank. It seems that every peace talk breaks down. There's no, there seems to be no hope. Listen, when Jesus finally brings peace to this earth, the walls will all be broken down. Even animals that don't get along will lie down side by side. And the lion will eat, eat grass instead of gazelles. Um, it's going to be an amazing thing. But uh, spiritually, this happens first. It happens through the gospel. Jesus' sacrificial and victorious work called the people to stop their frantic efforts of either building the wall or trying to tear it down and trust him. Through faith in him, they would find peace with God and the wall would crumble. In Jesus, they would become not just friendly neighbors, but one new man. This is the kind of peace desired by the people of the world, but they will never find it so long as they choose to deny and disown Christ. They will never experience the unity and peace they so love to expound if they ignore the cross. The only real peace among men is found within the church of Jesus Christ. In Christ, there is no Greek, 
neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's look again at the world symbol for peace. If you look closely, you'll see that it is an upside down broken cross. Despite its sanitized use in pop culture, it has a very dark history, and I'll read you some research I did about it. The Saracens in AD 711 used this symbol to alternately represent a broken cross, a raven's claw, or a witch's foot, all presumably satanic symbols. Under the reign of Roman Emperor Nero, infamous for his brutal persecution of Christians and Jews, this symbol was prominently used to represent a broken cross or a broken Jew. Nero crucified the Apostle Peter upside down and the horrific event resembled the downward pointing fork. It was thereafter called the Neronic Cross. With the Third Reich steeped in the occult, Hitler's Third Panzer Division used the same symbol from 1941 to 1945. The symbol in Germany is called a Todd's rune or death rune. It, it often appeared on death notices. It is also found on some of the tombstones of the notorious SS soldiers. This one blew me away. For Bertrand Russell, a famous humanist, atheist writer, philosopher, a supporter of communism, the symbol meant not only communism, but also peace without God. Anton LaVey, founder of the Church of Satan, used the downward pointing fork as the background for his altar. The message conveyed by the symbol is clear. Man's dream of humanistic peace is threatened by the cross, and the cross must be destroyed if they are to achieve the peace that they desire. There is no room in the world's pipe dream of peace for God's intervention on man's behalf. Man is too proud of his own efforts to please, pardon me, man is too proud of his own efforts to achieve peace, to, com to admit that they just don't work. Some Christian leaders teach that the church will bring about God's kingdom on earth by reforming the government through Christian principles combined with political power. I couldn't disagree more. This world does not need to be reformed politically or even morally. It needs to be re redeemed spiritually. This world, uh, the people need to turn to Jesus, but the Bible makes it clear that not all of them will. Those who trust in Jesus' death and resurrection will experience peace with God and with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who reject Jesus will waste their lives pursuing a pipe dream only to face the wrath of God at the end. One day there will be peace in this world. Jesus will return in person to set up his kingdom on this earth. Satan will be bound for a thousand years, and Jesus will reign together with his saints, the ones whom he has favored and who have trusted in him and whom he has graciously saved. Are you under God's favor today? Do you have peace with God through Jesus Christ? Or are you trying to make peace on your own? There is no peace without Jesus. 
Listen to Isaiah chapter 53. Um, I'm not sure which verses, 5 to 7, I think. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced, pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, which means our wicked wanderings from God. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the grievous sins of us all. God's word is calling you now to stop striving for peace in human terms and turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. He was punished in order to bring people to peace with God. And for all who trust in him, he is our peace. I began this message by showing you this symbol that was popular among the hippies in the 60s. I want to close with another blast from the past. I wasn't there, but I did inherit the 60s music. I want to play a song by Bob Dylan. And yes, Bob's going to sing it. So get ready if you haven't heard Bob in a while. Um, Bob Dylan made a profession of faith at one point in his career, I think about 1978 or so. And he produced some gospel albums, but he's apparently wandered from the truth. I pray that the work done by the done in his heart was genuine and that the Lord will draw him back in discipline but I want to play this song because it's true it sums up so very clearly that true peace is only found in Jesus Christ and Ronnie you'll have to turn the button that says computer you'll have to adjust that sliding button to make that play And I'll put the words and you can follow along. This is no-
required case. <laughs> All of them are liver or something. But, uh, but I, I really, uh, sometimes I listen to this song and I, I just, it just, it gets my heart. People are striving for peace and, and meaning, and they're, they're running around in masks. And they think they're strong, they think that they're wise, they think that they're invincible, but they're not deceiving the Lord. And this, this song here, Surrender Your Crowns on This Blood-Stained Ground, Take Off Your Mask. He sees your deeds, he knows your needs, even before you ask. How long can you falsify and deny what is real? How, how long can you hate yourself for the weakness you conceal? Of every earth is planned, earthly plan that be known to man. He is unconcerned. He's got plans of his own to set up his throne when he returns. So now is the time before he comes to set up his throne to surrender our crowns, our achievements, our worthiness, our merits to surrender them and come to the cross with empty hands. And empty hands which he will fill with faith to trust in. And I hope that, uh, you know, I don't know where all of your hearts are here, but that this will be an encouragement to you to go. Because people who say they have peace don't have any. And the only true peace is found in Jesus. Let's praise the cross. Thank you, Lord, for um, just for drawing us together again as your body to worship you. I thank you, Lord, for the one who is himself our peace. Um, who has broken down the middle wall of division between the, the Jews and the Gentiles, but also between every tribe and nation, so that we can all worship you in one spirit as one man. And Lord, the world longs for such unity, but they will not pursue it in you, because they are hostile toward you. And yet you send us out with your gospel, with your good news. And through the word of God, through the gospel, you break and you shatter these proud hearts, and you bring them to repentance and faith, and those that are enemies of God become friends of God. So we thank you for this gracious work, and please, Lord, uh, move us and motivate us to uh, be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. And we are dismissed.